This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Scott Lucas of Local H. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 255, 255, and this week, Jay, we have a special guest. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I wonder who it could be. Who could it be? Jay, this is the part where the, where the, uh, the um, in Wayne's <laughs> World, where you go, and we'll go, it will take us to the interview with Scott Lucas of Local oh, H. Yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's awesome. it. Here it is, our interview. Boom. Joining us this week from, actually, I don't know where. I'm, I'm assuming somewhere in Illinois. Is that right, Scott? Yeah, from my house in Chicago. Yeah, From Chicago, Illinois. Scott Lucas, thanks for joining us, Scott. Of course. Thanks for having me. Jay and I were just talking before about the new record, um, which we both really enjoyed. Being familiar with you and and Local H from going back, way back into the 90s. One of the things I was picking up on and, and Jay and I were discussing was um, this album felt a little heavier than some of the previous ones. Um, yeah. Both in terms of the guitar tone. And I felt like, personally, I felt like your voice was a little bit deeper. Um, I don't know if you yeah. picked up on that. But if, I don't know if that's just maturing with age. Um, but uh, is that something that you noticed as you were as you've been progressing as a singer? Well, yeah, that's something that uh, has been um, a happy byproduct of constant touring and um, and whiskey. Um, <laughs> I mean, because like you know, anytime I listen to old records uh, from the '90s, I'm kind of cringing at how much I sound like a 12-year-old. And uh, like, like the singers that, that I've always loved had, you know, sort of a throatier thing, like Mark Lanigan and, and um, Tim Ritoli from Red Red Meat, you know, that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. They sound like, sound like men, and, and it, it just, for whatever reason, that's just the way that I sounded. And, and one of the things that I, I really do like about this record is that it sounds that way. And... You know, I had this run-in in Russia a couple of years ago, right? And and that kind of changed my voice forever. And, and also, it was a lot of the record of Hey Killer was recorded uh, almost about a year ago, and like in December, and I caught a cold at one point. So some of those songs were like an absolute fight to get done, and you know, some of them it was like you know. You record a song and you were done for the day, and you come back maybe tomorrow or maybe the next day after that. So it's rougher, but you know, I I, I do like that. Don't even want you back in 
And one of the things I picked up on in listening to all the records from from start to finish to sort of reacquaint myself with some of the older things I haven't listened to in a while is um, felt like there was a little more of a nod to some of the metal influences in, in terms of the guitar tone and the thicker guitar tones that reminded me of like 90s Caius which you know goes uh-huh. back to like Black Sabbath and stuff like that. Do you right. have when you're making a record? Do you go into it thinking, you know, I want to change up the guitar tone a little bit on this record, or is that just sort of a natural evolution? No, you know, I mean, it, it, I mean the sounds on this record were just kind of going for whatever we we thought sounded good. Um, I mean, most of the record was basically recorded live at Albini Studio, Electrical Audio. And then we just took all the tapes over to Million Yen, which is just basically up the street, and it's uh, the producer Andy Gerber's studio. And we would just kind of strip the songs away and re- and replace, you know, guitar tones that maybe, you know, I, I don't want to make a record where every song has the same guitar tone. So we just strip it away and, you know, plug into like a little amp and go, oh, that sounds great, and just put that in there to these sort of... Uh, uh, you know, live tracks and mm-hmm. just strip away the stuff. I mean, I, I honestly, I don't think the guitar sounds any more metallic than the guitars on Hamfisted or or um, As Good as Dead. I mean, a song like uh, Manifest Density on that was like sort of a direct nod to, to Caius and sort of like a our attempt to sort of fuse Caius with um, those uh, heavy guitar. Um, instrumentals by the cure gotcha so you just did a string of shows with um failure uh mm-hmm. I, I think it was mostly like west coast how did, first of all how did those go have you had you guys were you from like friendly with those guys before from the 90s or was that the first time playing with those guys yeah no we, we, we've been uh friendly with them for for years uh the first tour we did together was 97 and we were the headliners and it, it was us and them and, and this band opening up for us was uh, called Edna Swap mm-hmm. and their guitar player is now uh, Rusty who plays with Paul McCurdy so everyone's had sort of a, uh, a a change of fortune since then but but we were on tour together for seven weeks and that, I mean that was a that was a big tour for for I think all of us. Um, okay. So yeah, so it was fun to go out with them again, and we've known them for years. Yeah, that's cool because we've had uh, their drummer Kelly on the show a couple times, and yeah. um, I asked him if he had had any if he had any stories to share touring with mm-hmm. you guys, and not knowing that you guys had toured back in the nineties, and he said that I should bring up a radio station in Connecticut, um, right? That is there some sort of story about messing with a DJ? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Kelly and I used to get into a lot of trouble together on that tour. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and one night I, we were in Hartford and after the show, and I think we went to some party and started some band was jamming. We started jamming our instruments. And then from there, like we were hanging out with, with some, DJ and he brought us to the to the radio station there. He said, "Come on, let's do a late night show." And we ended up locking him out of the out of the uh, the DJ room. What do you call it? 
The booth? The booth. All right, whatever. <laughs> so we ended up lock, locking him out and just playing records and, you know, being idiots. And, I mean, there were a lot of stuff like that. And and it was fun, you know. We were just, I mean, it was it was our first headline tour, headlining tour after uh, ever, you know. And, and As Good As Dead was starting to happen. And I think we had just finished this. Stone Temple Pilots tour, so it was, it was just you know, dudes in their twenties acting like dudes in their twenties. It was it was a lot of fun. Gotcha. In terms of then, like the touring landscape, I would imagine that how you toured in the nineties is probably a little bit different now with re- with regards to the advent of the internet and social media, and right. you can be in direct contact with your fans. On like basically an hourly or a minute to minute basis, um, right. has that changed the way that you guys approach shows? I mean, I've read some stuff about you know doing some interesting things with like set lists and um, in terms of having fans pick songs or sets and whatnot. Um, is that something that is you've always done, or is that was something that was come up in the last decade or so? Um, I think like some of those shows that you're talking about is sort of like a, you know, like a survival technique to where you're, you, you, we tour so much and and we'll go on a tour and we might not have a new record out. So like in the case of a record, uh, a tour where we have people pick the set list, we had this thing where we give them a sushi menu when they walked in and our songs were, were split up into to like long songs were like in the chef's super role and short songs were in the appetizer section and like singles were in the makimono section and you would just pick like seven and you could put in a special request to the chef and we'd take all the menus and tabulate them and that would be the set for the night. And that was just basically done as a way to sort of make things interesting for us and make things interesting for the audience, maybe. You know, because once uh, there'd be like these four-year gaps between records and, um, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and so we just try to keep things interesting. Um, and, and, that, and that was one of those things where you just... And also try to... People would write about it, so you'd come up with these ploys to get people to pay attention to your band, which is something you have to do if you know you're not on the radio or you know people aren't talking about a new record and and, and that's all that kind of stuff is yeah, that makes sense. I think Elvis Costello did something like that where he had like a wheel on his stage and he would spin it and it had song titles on the wheel. And whatever the wasn't it Yola Tango? Or is it Yola Tango did that too? I I, I think a couple of people have stolen that idea. I think Yola Tango did it, and I I've, I remember Elvis Costello did it. I mean, he's got a pretty big catalog of songs to pick from, so it had to be a pretty I big think wheel. That's a wonderful, yeah, that's a wonderful idea. I mean, we did this other tour where uh, we put it was after our sixth record had come out, and so we did a tour called the Six Angry Records Tour, and we would have a hat, and we would put pieces of paper with um, all six records written on each piece of paper. And we'd pick somebody out of the audience, and they would pick a record out of the hat, and we'd have to pay, play that record on the spot. And so that was another 
fun idea um, for a tour, but it, it kept us on our toes, like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, how did you pull that? How did you pull that off? Do you both have like incredible memory? That, that's we uh, had done a record release, a week long record release show for Twelve Angry Months, where each night was dedicated to a different one of our records, and then it was seven nights, and then one of the nights was just for B sides. Um, so we had to learn everything for this, um, and so since we'd already done the homework, it, it wasn't a completely crazy idea to mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, if you keep the muscle memory going, then it, right. it's not that exactly. bad. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The the local H website, thankfully, um, we don't have to dedicate a lot of time to, I guess, rehashing the history of the band, which sometimes we do when we talk to people who are in bands that don't have like a good Wikipedia page. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. know the history of local H or can learn about it, but it starts with the first show in the 25 year history. I'm curious in, in terms of going back a little bit before that, what were the records or what were the albums that you first got into when you were f- first getting into music that really made an impression on you? I mean, my first favorite band was ABBA. Really nice, and that was that. That made that was a. I mean, I don't want to say that they were my Beatles, but yeah, for for a little kid, they were my Beatles, and it kind of like had this really lasting impression on me as far as how important hooks are, and and that's kind of. I mean, whether you can see it or not, that's kind of been the thing that stayed with me. It's just. You know, songs that have melody and have hooks, and and then that was a really, made a really really big impression on me, and and that was the first thing, and the first band that I really got into before I started getting into like heavier guitar music, but it made such an impression that it was it it was never really possible to, to completely get rid of it, and you know I've never listened to ABBA, ironically, you know it, it I think they're fucking geniuses and and I love all their stuff so um, so that that made a big huge impression on me and then from there you know it went to like Floyd and Led Zeppelin and then that was a whole another thing that never left me and from there it went to you know more metal bands like Iron Maiden and uh, ACDC and it just kept going and then finally you know one day I saw an REM video and I was like, what the fuck is this? And, you know, it just went from there, you know, REM to U2 and the Pixies and, you know, all those bands, you know, all my friends were with punks and they were getting into punk, we were getting me into punk bands like The Descendants and Dead Milkmen and it just kept going, you know, but it's not, it's not too crazy from, I think most uh, teenage boys. So when did you make the decision that uh, you wanted to start writing and playing music? Uh, I got my first guitar at 13, um, and I pretty much got it just so I could write songs that were in my head. Uh, I've been writing writing lyrics since I was in grade school. Um, and so by the time I was 13, I was like, all right, let's 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 start making these songs real. And... But I had to learn how to play guitar first. So um, that was just 
for that sole reason, for no other reason. Um, and then, yeah, then started playing in bands and, you know, you play covers and then joined a punk band, the Family Cruisers, and, you know, we were writing songs and recording four-track demos. And, and from there, I started writing even more songs and uh, just doing my own thing. And, uh, I don't know, after high school is like when Local H kind of started to happen. What was that first guitar, do you remember? It's a harmony. Yeah. It's a harmony. Nice. Uh, it, it had, it had, like a two-inch action on it. It was, I don't know how I played it. But <laughs> it was pretty, pretty great. So, did you get an amp right away with it, or, or did it take you a little while to get all came, the pieces it, together? It came with an amp. It came okay. With an amp, uh, a little tiny amp, and if you cranked it up all the way, it had like a sweet distortion sound to it. Um, and I, you know, I played on that until I blew it, which was, I don't know, four months later. And then I think I got a crate amp and yeah, you know, on and on and on. So did you have any, I guess you'd, I guess you call them like influencers. Like, did you have a sibling or a, a friend who was inf- introducing you to this music or were you kind of going out and finding it on your own or just through peers? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't have, I don't have any older brothers, um, so I kind of had to rely on my friend's older brothers, um, and uh, a friend of mine, I spent a lot of time at his house, Kirk Cliff, and he had three older brothers, and so, you know, it was like a steady diet of Zeppelin and and uh, Scorpions and Judas Priest and you know, all the good stuff. And, you know, they were the ones that took us to our first concert, which is Robert Plant. And uh, then it was Rush. And, you know, so it was that kind of thing, like where uh, I just used somebody else's older brothers to sort of figure out what was what. And then and then from there you move on, you know. You, you don't you don't want to listen to what anybody has to say. And you sort of find your own thing. So is this in, is it Zion? Illinois. Mm-hmm. So Zion, that yeah. I, so I looked that up on a, on the Google Maps, and it looks like it's about an, mm-hmm. like an hour from Milwaukee and an hour from Chicago. Is that right? That's about right. Yeah. So, I, would you describe it as a small town? Is that the description, or is it a, a I would midsized? I, mean, I, I would. Uh, it, it, there's not a lot of. It's not. It's too far away to be a suburb of Chicago, and. Um, so it's not really part of Chicago land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it has, it's, it has its own style. It's kind of like a, it's a place that was founded as a theocracy. And when I think it still is, but definitely when I was growing up, it was a dry town. Um, huh. so, so it really, and it has more, more church. It had, when I was growing up, more churches, um, per capita than any other town in the U.S. So it, it really had this this personality that was, was kind of repressive. Um, but but nobody really seemed to really buy it. And it, it, it I think it really taught me a lot about hypocrisy. And uh, it was an interesting place to grow up. Boring, but interesting. Was it, real, was it welcoming for kids who were listening to punk bands and, and metal bands to 
have places to play shows or did you guys have to leave town to no. okay no 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 i mean like when everyone started getting into punk we do shows at like uh vfw halls and things like that but most of the shows i played in high school were garage parties or basement parties um i don't recall ever there, there were no venues or anything to play and especially you know you're a high school kid there's just nothing to do there's no, I mean, if, if it's dry town, there's no bars, right? In that, right, right. And it, even if there were, there, there was no way that you know you'd be able to play in those places and, and not be of age. I mean, there were a couple of bands from Zion, and one of them was the Shoes, and um, and they, you know, they had their own studio, and we recorded a lot of demos there. And they're, you know, I mean, they were, we all knew who they were, and. They had made a couple records for Electra, and so they showed that it could be done. You could, you could do this. Um, it really didn't matter. Those guys really didn't play live a lot, so there was never really a chance to see them. Um, there was a there's a guy that lived down my street that was in a band called Wrath. That was like a thrash metal band. It did pretty good, um, but yeah. That was about it. I mean, that's all you need is just a couple of bands that sure convince you that you can do it. You know. So I want to jump the, uh, the one interesting th- thing in reading through the the detailed history of the band in the portion where you guys um, end up signing to Island. It's actually mm-hmm. based on Polydor merging with Island which I think, mm-hmm. it, based on our conversations with a number of artists, may have been the first time where a merger of two record labels actually turned out as a good thing, because most of the time it meant everybody was getting dropped or ignored at, right. at that point. But that ended up, I guess in a way, getting you guys signed. As Well, I mean, would do you think that... Let me backtrack a little bit. Do you think that Polydor was going to sign you with, with Joe, or was it contingent upon island coming into the picture oh yeah polydor was was on board i mean and you're right when you say it was the first time but it was also the last time that that a merger was was a good idea um or a merger was going to turn out to be good for us that was the last time and i've i've heard it many many times since then and it's always bad fucking news um but that turned out to be great and i remember the guy who signed us he was he was like, yeah, you know, I mean, because we were excited because uh, we were really into quicksand, and so we were excited to be on the same label as them. And he was like, now you can say you're on the same label as PJ Harvey and you too. And I was like, yeah, that is pretty cool. And uh, it turned out to be great. And and everybody that worked there was super supportive and, and had their shit together. And, you know, and even talking to Chris Blackwell, like his attitude was he didn't really think of Island as a major label. He always thought of it as an independent label. So he had that kind of thinking, like no one's going to tell him what to do, which, you know, I really gravitated towards. And and it didn't matter how many records I sold, in his mind, uh, they were an independent label. So during your time before that, when you were gigging, you're writing songs before Ham-Fisted comes out, and then I guess through the writing and the recording of that, I assume that you were working 
the the band was uh, had your attention, but that you were working jobs. Um, mm-hmm. What what sort of jobs did you have as a as a working musician at that point? I remember uh, my dad trying to get me a, a job at the phone company, and I was I was all set. And a good friend of his had had me was going to get a job, and get benefits, and the whole thing was going to happen. Uh, and I had I was all set to go in for an interview, and I was like, "Well, wait, wait, what the fuck am I doing? You know, I don't I don't want this. You know, I, I don't want to be this." And so, uh, but I had to get a job, and so I. Uh, I uh, ended up, a friend of mine was managing it at Subway, so I ended up going there and working there. So that was the kind of job that I knew that, like, I could leave anytime, and, you know, if I needed to go do something, I wouldn't be stuck. And I wouldn't have to be there at, like, 8 in the morning. And so, yeah, that's what I did. I was a sandwich artist, and that was a really, really <laughs> good one. I would imagine you and also it, were able to get some free subs out of it. Oh yeah, well that's that's part of it. But I mean, it was it was my one true talent was uh, making sandwiches. <laughs> um, at what do you, point do you still do that for fun? Do you have a little sub shop on the side, or do you get the guy on tour that? At, at one point, would I do that? <laughs> Maybe we'll see how it goes. <laughs> do you work the deli when you guys get a little deli tray at your shows now? Do you kind of put something together for everybody? Yeah, but I always end up just. Uh, <laughs> You know, quoting Spinal Tap and doing the <laughs> Nigel Tufnell impersonation. <laughs> nice. So, what, at what point were you able to put that behind you, and and was it as good as Dead comes out, and you have to go tour nonstop for that? Is it when you're like, I, I'm not. The day jobs are done. Yeah, I mean, when the first record, Ham Fisted, came out, uh, you know, I, I left to go on tour, but when that was over, I went back to work there. And, uh, I mean, you know, I had friends that worked there. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a horrible time, but I, I did go back to work there and we started, you know, writing the next record. But I think once we started touring on as good as dead is, is when I finally said, all right, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I tried to keep a good positive work ethic, but I was like, this is just killing me. So I had to get out of there. And how does that affect? I've been curious because, you know, uh, uh, Jay and I were in bands, and but we always were doing just the weekend, you know, drive from Columbus, Ohio to Indianapolis yeah. or Nashville, Louisville, wherever. But we just do that over the weekends. But you're going out for months at a time. Um, I, I just get like practical about stuff like who's taking care of the apartment. You know what I mean? Like, or mm-hmm. do you literally just like end your lease and put everything in a bag and go? And then when you get back, you have to find a new, like, how does that work when you're at that age and in your twenties, when you don't have a house and you don't have, you know, those sorts of commitments, but you still have yeah. to have like clothing somewhere. I mean, you can do whatever you want. You know I mean? Uh, I mean, I could say you could do whatever you want when you're at that age, but you can do whatever you want when you're at any age, you know? Mm-hmm. It just depends on what you want. Um, you don't have to let your possessions own you. You know, it just just depends on what you want to do and where you want to be. I mean, I I like coming home to a place, but I don't have to come home to a place. And and uh, yeah, no, you know, I mean, 
you're going to come home sooner or later, so why not have some place that you can crash? And I think that's always been the way I looked at it. Um, I mean, even when I had a roommate, it was our roommate. My roommate was, you know, in the band, and he was our tour manager. So, so yeah, there was, I don't know. I never really thought so much about that. Gotcha. Jay, I feel like I'm hogging all the questions. Do you want to ask some stuff? <laughs> uh, I, I uh, was looking at some of the bands you toured with and some, some type of pilots was mentioned. And we had Jay Robbins on a few months ago. And mm-hmm. he sort of had a, an interesting story in that he either didn't think much of that band or didn't know much about them until they toured with them. And he really came away kind of becoming pretty big fans of them just because they were so nice to them and such great guys. Uh, is that consistent with, with your experience touring with them then? And, um, are you still, I think that's consistent. Yeah. I think that's consistent with touring with just about any band, you know, I I think you sort of have this idea and attitude about what a band is worth and, and what you think of them. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, Shawbox came from like Discord and everything, so they mm-hmm. probably didn't think too much of a band who was putting a debut record out on Atlantic. So I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I think you go on tour with a band and and you you hear those songs every night and and you you kind of oh yeah oh I, I see the worth in this you know mm-hmm. um, I think that happens with a lot of bands. And that's one of the things I kind of look forward to, you know, just kind of like, oh, no, you know, I didn't know this about these people. And mm. it's kind of cool. Do you find yourself kind of learning different things from the different bands you've toured with? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, I remember touring, like one of the first tours that we did was with uh, TLC. And, you know, just kind of learning. And their audience was pretty rough us you know and, and mm-hmm. it was it was definitely a lesson in how to sort of greet a hostile audience that didn't give a shit about you and just wanted to see corrosion come out and they kind of had to win them over and, and I mean uh, that's an important lesson for any band to learn and and you kind of you can kind of tell when bands haven't had to go through that and, and they, they haven't had to I guess you could call it paying your dues, but I mean, it's like, it's like anything, you know, you've got to sort of deal with the rough stuff and, and figure out how to handle an audience. How did you win them over? What's the, what's the method you take there? I mean, I guess you can go a couple of different ways. What, what was your approach? Um, I just get real confrontational with them. Uh, oh, okay. And, and I sort of, sort of get like, you know, like if somebody would scream, you suck, I'd be like, you suck motherfucker. And, you know, if you want to talk to me, come over to the merch booth after the show. And I mean, there was only one time, and it was in Jersey, when I actually had to sort of deal with somebody coming over to the merch booth. But I mean, once you kind of stand up to the audience, I, yeah. I felt like you'd get the audience on your side. And people gotcha. would applaud, and, and, and then they'd, they'd sort of see that you weren't going to take any shit. It's just like a comedian dealing with, with hecklers, you know? Yeah. It's the same conversation that we've been having with my five-year-old daughter and the bully on the bus. 
Yeah, just say fuck you to her. Right, right. (laughs) Like she's going around looking for the weak one. Just don't be the weak one and you won't have a problem. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Redirect her. Punch the first, just punch the biggest kid on the bus in the throat and you'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, I was coming close to that. I don't think my wife would go for that, but Mm. I'm getting as close to that as I can and still be responsible. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to. Just tell the audience we don't endorse uh, five-year-olds punching each other on the <laughs> school bus for that. Um, we're not we advocating don't that. Not endorse it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've had a couple drummers in the band, and being a duo, pretty important that you <laughs> you jive with the drummer, right? I mean, especially since I think you know local H has a sound uh, that you've you've honed and refined over the years. What do you look for? Say so you had a you know, I know you probably don't want to think about this, but say you had to go find another drummer. Well, what are you looking for uh, for somebody that's going to make it work as local H? I mean, local H drummer. The first thing, the first thing is that someone that hits hard. You know, is a hard hitter, and mm-hmm. then I think, you know, it's just kind of sort of like a Bonham-esque type of guy who can like make a shit ton of noise. But mm-hmm. Then the second, it, you know, it should be somebody that's interesting to watch, you know. Um, since there is only two of us, uh, there's a lot of sort of visual slack that has to be taken up by each member. Um, and there may be more energy, like a, a drummer for Local Age has to be more energetic than most drummers for most bands. Mm. And I, I have to be more energetic than most guitar vocalist for us bands. So, I mean, that that's the main thing. Just there's this template that was um, laid down very early on with the band, and it just sort of has to fit that. It does. I don't really need each drummer to be exactly the same, and, and I, I think that would be kind of silly to do anyway. Mm-hmm. But... But as far as being hard-hitting and interesting and fun to watch, I think that's the main thing. I'm fascinated with the the guitar setup to pull off the bass sound. I've read about it. I've seen it. But it's still, (laughs) I guess from a technique standpoint, I mean, do you you find yourself playing different? Um, Or do you just play like you normally would play a guitar? I mean, how does that work out? There's some things that you have to do that that are different. Um, it, it's almost like like uh, do you play guitar? Yeah, I do. Okay, so like if you if you had an acoustic guitar and you were doing like sort of accompanying yourself on and doing an acoustic show, um, and so if you were playing songs that, but you can have your full band, you know, it's sort of like that. Like you've got to hold down the bass notes. You've got to get the treble in there. You've got to sort of kind of make as much noise so you don't miss all these things. And, and that's sort of a approach that I take to playing guitar in a two-piece. Um, and then you sort of like look at the guitar. I remember reading this interview with uh, Jimi Hendrix where he was sort of split the guitar in, into threes. Like the bottom two strings would be the bass, middle two would be, you know, the mid stuff, and he'd play little melodies on the high strings. And I thought that was interesting that mm. he was trying to 
make a full band unto himself. And yeah. that's what you try to do. And that's what I try to do. Like, you have moving bass parts, but guitar parts that, like, if you had a bass player, you wouldn't worry about the, the bass line. You'd just play these notes that, you know, you play on the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just, it's kind of a lot like playing an acoustic show by yourself, except I got tons of amps and there's a drummer bashing away next to me. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, are you familiar with uh, Royal Blood at all? Royal Blood, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, on them. Is they are they is that basically the same setup that that you're you're running the extra pickup? I mean, is no, it the same idea? I think what Royal Blood is doing is sort of like the opposite. Um, no. I think what we've been doing all these years is um, trying to make you make it sound like there's a bass player in the band mm-hmm. with a guitar, and what they're doing is making it sound like there's another guitar player in the band with a bass, mm. and and. Uh, I saw the show and it seemed like uh, he was using, um, he was really clever on, on using uh, the whammy pedal to sort of play these bass notes and then he'd hit it and it would sound like a guitar lead. And and so it was it was interesting for me to see them like coming towards the same thing, but from the opposite direction. It was kind of gotcha. cool. Gotcha, gotcha. Do you think it's um, overall, um, you know, looking at the catalog and, sort of the overall arc of the band, has it, you know, been a good thing? Has it driven you to maybe, I don't know, either uh, approach things a little differently than other people would and kind of create your own little niche? I mean, you know, the the whole thing with the two-piece started because we had to do it. It was was a necessity. I mean, we didn't Mm -hmm. know. The bass players in Zion all had mullets, and we just kind of didn't know what else to do and we had recorded some demos and labels were starting to bite and they wanted to come see us play and our bass player had quit so we had to figure out a way to sort of like we didn't want to miss out on that any opportunity so we had to figure out a way to keep it going without the bass player and mm-hmm. and so it was never really a, it wasn't a a style decision or a conscious decision about aesthetics or anything it was just completely a way to survive and Mm -hmm. i think a lot of what's going on with this band is and most of the really cool things that have happened with this band has been because of just trying to survive and, and survival techniques next year next april is the 20th anniversary of as good as dead um Do you ha- do you guys have plans uh, to celebrate that anniversary? Are there you know one of the big things now is to do re-releases yeah. on you know 180 gram vinyl and that sort of thing. Anything like that or a cassette well, version? I mean, <laughs> we did this. Yeah, we did, we did this thing this year where it was uh, we played in April and it was the almost to the day of the 25th anniversary of our first show at, at Whitewater in 1990. But that was also, it wasn't only a 25th anniversary show, it was also a record release show for uh, Hey Killer, which had just come out. So it, I felt good in a way that was it, was, it was kind of a contradiction. Like it was part nostalgia, but we played 
at least one song from every one of our records. But it was also, you know, a ton of songs from the new record. We played like eight songs from the new record. So, you know, I'm not really a big nostalgia fan, you know. Um, And that thing that you were looking at on the website, we're just putting that together right now for a book that should be out by Christmas. So I'm kind of all nostalgic out. But having said that, there is somebody who's going to be putting out a nice heavy slab of vinyl of As Good As Dead, and we are in talk to do something. But the idea that I have, which I hope happens, but it's contingent on a few things, I don't really want to say what it is, but I have a great idea for a show, and I, and I hope to Christ that it happens, and I hope uh, everybody can get on board with it, so we'll see what happens. Is there any, do you have any issues with, in talking to Kelly, with them reissuing Fantastic Planet? It's been a big headache dealing with their old label, um, mm-hmm. dragging their feet, giving them uh, access to the masters to, to remaster for yeah. final and all that kind of stuff. Have you had any preliminary discussions or have you had any roadblocks from Island in terms of getting that done? Or has that been not even broached well, yet? Well, I don't. Island's now universal, so right. you're dealing right. with, you know, Seagram's or, or whatever. I, don't, I have no idea who owns Universal anyway. But uh, it's not the first time that I've been approached about putting out Place records on vinyl. And I get asked about it all the time from people at shows, and I've been approached by many labels. And it's always been a pain in the ass to try to get Universal to sign off on it. But... These guys that are putting out this this time uh, in April, they've done this before, and, and they've got a relationship with them, and they've already they've been through the hard stuff, and, and they know how to make this happen. So this looks like this time it's actually going to happen. It would seem but yeah, like you know, there's a lot of problems. It would seem like they'd be into it, right? Yeah. Like it's a no-brainer, but there's all these. You know, they're kind of like, well, you're not going to sell this many records. Fuck it. We don't care. And I think as time has gone on and they've seen, you know, record sales sort of shrink, they sort of realize that these, their numbers were kind of unrealistic and that things are different now and, and, you know, that this whole boutique vinyl thing isn't going away you know i mean there's a bunch of things that i'm sure that they've had to sort of adjust their own expectations on sure and, I, and I would, you know i mean when, when you're dealing with a big corporation they're not exactly quick on their toes to do stuff like that to it to adapt you know they're like you adapt to us and you know they don't they're not into adapting to the times look, look how long it's taken for them to realize that you know people aren't going to buy cds yeah, and, I, and Jay and I have had this discussion with people before about, it, you know, the record labels being rather slow to adapt to various 
changes and whatnot. And it seems like one of the issues that they have is that uh, the, the labels wanted to move to a singular system of music delivery. First, it was, you know, vinyl records, and they wanted cassettes, and then they wanted CDs, and then they want, because of digital, they want to move everything to the digital format. But consumers don't want to consume everything in the same way. And some people want their CDs still. Some people want mm-hmm. their vinyl. And in the same way that, like, you know, there's other media that can be consumed in multiple formats, whether it's, you know, watching a TV show on your iPad or watching a TV show on TV or watching it on your iPhone or however you want to do right. it. Like, that's the, I think that's the last sort of in the long history of mistakes that labels have made in the last decade or so. One of them is just not recognizing that. It, people want to consume products in in the way that they want to consume them at their sort of leisure, and they want to force yeah. a delivery system on them. So hopefully they're starting yeah, I mean, to see they've, that. They've, they've all, always been able to play the tune that everyone else had to march to. And when that got taken away from them, uh, you know, maybe they acted like petulant children. But, I mean, they brought this on themselves by charging 20 bucks for a small piece of plastic that costs like less than a dollar to make, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, 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 it's their own fault, you know? Um, and I, and I see, I think what you were talking about, you see it happening with, you know, film, you know, the studios want to eradicate film and they want everything to be digital. And, you know, you get people who are like, well, we like film and they're fighting back. you got Tarantino putting a movie out on 70 millimeter this year. I mean, you had, Paul Thomas Anderson putting out movies on 70 millimeter a few years back. Christopher Nolan last year, you know, I mean, and then it becomes this, this thing that people, they do want it, you know, but uh, corporations are used to saying, no, this is what it's going to be. And, and not only that, we're going to make you buy all your old shit on this new format and we'll just keep rolling in the dough. And, you know, I mean, that, that couldn't go on forever, could it? No, no. And that's, that's the thing about rebuying the same thing. Like, you know, you owned a Beatles record on vinyl and then they put out mm-hmm. the, you know, put it out on CD and then they put out the remastered expanded edition on CD right. and then they put out the definitive, you know, <laughs> right. whatever 5.0 stereo surround version. It's like, how many times can I buy the white album? You, know, you have no idea how many copies of Dark Side of the Moon I have. It's, it's, it's insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you guys navigate the, uh, what is your point of view on releasing music now? I mean, what formats do you try to get in and, and what is your overall take on sort of the business component of selling music? You know, people still buy CDs from us at mm-hmm. shows, you know, so we, we like to have those. Um People love vinyl, and we do too, so we like to have that. Um, you know, and people buy the record from, from iTunes. Um, I, I think what we'll put it out on whatever format people want it on, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we, we put an EP out a few years ago on cassette, and we sold them, you know? It, it's, it's just a matter of what people are willing to, like, what people want, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not really precious about what format people listen to it on. I, I don't give a shit. I think, you know, I mean, 
like take Radiohead. I like to listen to Radiohead records on CD. You know, um, I like to listen to Velvet Underground records on vinyl. Um, it, it's just it's just what I like to do. What, what band I feel sounds better on what format. So uh, you're re- you're releasing this music independently, right? I mean, you have a, a label, but essentially it's it's you, correct? Is that the way it's structured? Yeah. So right. when you look at the streaming business, uh, being that there's no, there should be very little middleman for you, correct? Are you happy with sort of what you see out of that? Or, or do you think that uh, there's room to go in terms of, you know, the artists getting paid on streaming services? Um, you know, I wouldn't mind getting paid more, but, uh, you know, I, I see it for what it is. Um, you know, I get this question a lot. People are like, oh, is it okay if I stream your record? I'm like, yeah, you know, especially if you've already bought the record. Mm-hmm. Stream away. I mean, stream it 24 hours a day. Please do, you know. Right. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. But, I, I don't know, like a couple months ago, I I was listening to it like a Sunday's record in, in the van. And it's like, I, you know, I got that record, but the chances of me actually taking the CD out on tour and popping it on a CD player would have been, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. But I, I saw it there on Apple Music. I was like, yeah, it's a Sunday. It's rainy. Let's listen to the Sundays. Mm-hmm. You know? And then from there, I listened to Stone Roses, and we had a, a great day. But So I, uh, it, it, it's not horrible. It's, it's kind of awesome in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm, yeah. um, and anything that gets people listening to music is, is something I'm down with. Mm-hmm. Um and if this is what you got to do to, I mean, it, it's easier than trying to download records from like fucking LimeWire or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's um, every we still hear. Uh, in fact, this weekend I had a back and forth with a musician I won't mention, but uh, just sort <laughs> of basically, you know, was kind of blaming fans for stealing music and they're ruining the music business and. And I was sort of like, you clearly don't know how difficult it is to illegally download music. Like, it is not easy. <laughs> like, I mean, you have to be, you know, most of these people, if you ask them, like, okay, we'll go illegally download a record. Show me how you would do that. They wouldn't have a clue. So there's right. just, I don't know, this sort of, I don't know if the music business perpetuates it, but this, yeah, I guess kind of want to blame the fans for, for a bad business. And they've done well, it since... I don't think people- yeah, exactly. They used to feel like yeah. tape stuff, you know? I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's you know, you take songs off the radio. Like, I mean, that's what I grew up doing. You know, it's, it's, it's what it is. Uh, it, it's how people consume things. Yeah, you know, I mean, you can either, you can either bitch about it or you can get on board. It just, it doesn't, the, the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, pick your cliche. You, you can go with it or not, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, People do come to shows and they, and they do want to buy a physical product from us. Um, so it's not it's not like no one's doing it, but it's like you got to think of it like Spotify and, and Apple Music are kind of like the radio, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. we're not getting played on the radio. Um, at least this way we've got a fighting chance. We can right. find our shit and you can listen to it. And we don't have to suck anybody's dick to get on the radio. Mm-hmm. So I'll take it. You know? yep. 
Oh, I always think it's funny. People are like, well, everybody wants music for free. And my point is they've always gotten it for free. It was called the radio. <laughs> but yeah. the radio got so shitty that nobody wants to listen to it anymore. So now everybody's music moving to either music services or buying from iTunes because exactly. commercial radio is so horrible. Further. You can take it further. Like nobody wants to pay for music. It's like, well, maybe you've been making shitty records. Right. And nobody believes that you have more than one good song on a record. So mm. now whose fault is that? That's your right. fault. So, I mean, that's what, why you get people cherry picking, you know, and, and they should be allowed to. No one, no one should have to eat a whole shit sandwich for like one piece of good shit. I don't, I don't know why anyone would <laughs> eat a shit sandwich in the first place. We're back to Spinal Tap and the shark sandwich. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've taught, one of the themes that's, that's gone through our show is that, uh, you know, records in the 90s were so long. Like the CD format made it possible that you could put right. way too much music. And that's one of the things that fatigues us when we go back and uh, and listen to records, uh, you know, either that we hadn't heard or haven't heard in a long time is, wow, were they long. Um, right. Was that something you, got, you at the time that you were conscious of? Did you talk about like, I mean, your, your records were fairly controlled, it seems. I mean, in the yeah. 12, 13 song range. The, the idea was always like, I mean, you know, our first record came out on vinyl and came out on cassette. So you know, I, I was always really conscious about what was going to be on side one and what was going to be on side two. Mm. So, so the first three records were definitely like that. You know, it was like, but I, to this day, I still think that way. I mean, I've never really stopped thinking about what's going to be on side one or side two, or if it's a, a double record like Helium Above, side one, two, three, and four. Mm-hmm. So it, it, and and that's just because I grew up with that. You know, I grew up with one and two, and like a band like Pink Floyd really instilled the idea and putting a full record together in my mm-hmm. head. So. The idea of like a ton of bonus tracks and, and shit like that. And it's like, you know, if they're bonus tracks, don't put them on the record. You know, <laughs> I mean, don't bore us with this shit. You know, who needs it? You know, so I, I never was into that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's always sort of been this uh, 70s idea of, of how to put a record together. And, and the, the CD format never really came into it for me. Well, Jay, we are about to hit the um, the hour mark, so this is probably a good Great. spot for us to to wrap up. And um, I think uh, I was looking at the website. You guys got a string of dates coming up soon before the new year. Yeah, we've got some dates uh, up and um, including the New Year's Eve. So, and, and they're just kind of around the area. So we're going to be home for for Christmas. No, it's it's good. Do you have anything special planned for the New Year's? I think it's you play the thirtieth. Is that right? Play the thirty first. Oh, you play thirty first. Okay. Do you have anything special planned for that evening? Any particular? Uh, not that I yeah, want to give it away or anything, but uh, it's it's okay. It's it's out there. Uh, we are at Cubby Bear and we're doing a, a Mad Max theme. Um, so like every like last year we did a Godzilla theme and played Godzilla of course and. Had our buddy come out in a Godzilla outfit and it's fucking hilarious. So we're we're gonna do stuff along the same lines with, with um, Mad Max this year. Are you gonna be tied to the front of the stage and just play a, a guitar solo for 
two and a half hours. Yeah, he just <laughs> has like flames come out of my guitar. What great. was the name of that guy? Um, uh, uh, well, he's a guitar player from Slipknot, right? Was it? No, he was yeah. a. Um, no, I'm just kidding. No, but uh, that guitar is every guitar player should want a guitar that has flames shooting out of it. I mean, that's pretty much the most badass guitar of all time. It's, it's amazing. It's what amazing. was his? I can't remember what the na- the character's a, name was. He but had a cool name. He had a cool name. Um, yeah, I can't remember it either. Well, I saw saw the movie twice. Actually, went in. Uh, I live in Columbus, Jason, Austin, all? Texas. And uh, you only saw it twice. Only saw it twice, but I, I dragged Jay out to the theater. I was like, Jay, you got to see this movie. This is amazing. <laughs> and we went to the Alamo Draft House to see it. Right. And uh, yeah, which draft house? Uh, the one in um, it's in when, uh, South Austin. Yeah, not the, the original. South Lamar? Uh, one no, South? it's it's uh, it's not in South Lamar. It's on um, oh, what's the name of this road? It's south. It's uh, kind of more in the suburbs. One of them. Yeah. I'm surprised you know South Lamar. I'm a big fan of Austin. I'm a big fan of the Draft House. I'm a big fan of movies. I'm I'm actually thinking of going there to see uh, Richard Linklater's uh, presenting um, New York, New York by Martin Scorsese. I'm thinking of just going there just so I can see him do that. Very cool. Uh, It's the Doof Warrior, by the way. This is the name of the guy with the guitar. What's his name? The Doof Warrior. D-O-O-F. That's right. Yeah, it's definitely not one of the cooler names George Miller's ever called. No. (laughs) All right, Scott. Thank you so much uh, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We really appreciate it. Of course. And uh, best of luck with the shows coming up. And we're looking forward to the uh, release uh, in in 2016 of... uh, as good as dead. As good so. as dead. Okay. All right. All right. Great. All right, Scott. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. Bye. Have a good Thank evening. Bye. Bye. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Age group champion.